Last Sunday, we reflected on creation, um, kind of as Deacon Don or Deacon Liz through Deacon Don uh, reflected uh, through him, through Jesus, and that was not anything made that was made. Um, And we reflected on creation and how God formed humanity, formed us from the dust and uh, breathed um, life into the nostrils of man and how that's an example of how humanity, each, each of us, is both lowly and frail, actually, and very, very frail, and at the same time, great. How humanity is lowly and great at the same time. And Gregory of Nyssa wrote, if you uh, consider nature alone, humanity is nothing and has no value. But if you regard the honor with which he has been treated, man is something great. If you regard the honor with which he has been treated, man is something great. Now sin, um, as Adam and Eve and each of us know as well, sin is a rebellion um, in a way about against our creatureliness, our dependence upon God. It's a rejection of our dependence and our relationship um, to God as our creator, as the one that breathes life and says, I put before you life and death, choose life. And if life is a gift um, from God, if the breath of God's life-giving spirit gives us life, then sin is a bit like saying, Thanks for life, I'll live by my own strength for now, which is ultimately a choosing of death over life. And like the parable of the prodigal um, son, we know that being, being stray in that way, being without any boundaries, is not the same as being free. That being stray is not the same as being free. But Jesus, who was a new Adam, um, reconciled and showed that great model of how Lowliness and greatness are not at odds. He did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That Jesus demonstrated that dependence, that lowliness, the creatureliness. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and at every turn, at every choice, he chose life over death, um, even paradoxically choosing um, death on um, life unto death on the cross, offering his life in thanksgiving to the Lord, even unto death on the cross. And Jesus opened for us the way to God. Today we'll reflect further on how um, lowliness and greatness, how God uses these to demonstrate um, his greatness in the example of Abram, or Abraham and Abram's life. And first off, um, just, just to be clear, um, Abram is the same as Abraham. Um, Abram is the patriarch that later in life um, God called Abraham. And God first called Abram, which is a name which means exalted father, um, when he was 75 years old. And later when he was 99, God called him Abraham, which means father of many. Now Abraham's identity um, by his name, that identity with, with fatherhood, is ironic, um, given the fact that when he was introduced in Genesis 12 as Abram, exalted father, he was actually childless. He was the father of none. And then when God called Abraham, um, or called him Abraham um, later in Genesis 17, when he was 99 years old, the father of many, um, Abraham was still just the father of one. So when he was exalted father, he was the father of none. When he was many, father of many, he was still only the father of one and not according to the promise um, which God had made. 
But God told um, Abram, I will make of you a great nation. And Genesis 12 describes how God called Abram to go out from his country, from his kindred, from his father's house to the land which I will show to you. Now, Abram's country, his kindred, his father's house um, was very near to what we know as, as Babel, near Babel um, in modern-day Iraq. And if you remember the story of uh, Babel, it was the place where people um, sought to make their name great. It was a place uh, where self-made men and women um, in sort of an idolatry of themselves, very, very much like, thanks for life, I will do with it as I wish, um, where they really did um, seek to make themselves great and building a tower um, that they might be like God. And so these um, self-made, idolatrous men and women, God scattered in their pride and their conceit. And the, as you know, the Tower of Babel didn't end with the glory of man, but the scattering and the spreading out of men. So generations later, we have Abram called from the land of self-made men um, to the land and to the place where God, a new land in which God would make Abram's name great. Abram's called from the place where people try to make themselves great to a place in which God would make Abram great. Now, by many measures, um, Abram was actually a prosperous person, and he was a successful person. He had flocks and herds and servants. Um, He had uh, over 300 fighting men, so he was not just an ordinary um, guy, but was a person of prominence. Um, But God's, um, his uh, honoring of Abram was not because of Abram's um, success and his prominence, but because Abram was one who hoped in God's promises um, and put hope in God's promises, not his own success. Abram's most important work, if you want to call it that, was that he practiced an obedience of faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Abram wasn't a person without sin or error. Um, he did not, he was not um, sort of uh, without any flaw in his, in his hope or his faith, but he was an example of the, that obedience of faith. And think of the, the great expression of faith that his obedience to this first promise was. Abram packed up his tents and his fortunes and entrusted himself to God's blessing. He led his flocks, he cared for his household, he journeyed following after God's promises and trusted that God's promises were much better worth pursuing no matter what the apparent costs, uh, the insecurity of taking what you have in a place of familiarity to a place uh, where he was a stranger. But believing God's promise that God's um, promises were better than the things which Abram could see. In our reading from Romans, the Apostle Paul reflects on the whole of Abram's life, or let's say Abraham's life, right? Like a stream of water um, that flows through a land, maybe like Minnehaha Creek that flows from sort of western suburbs uh, to the Mississippi River, um, each bend and turn of the river is unique in its own way, um, but it's still the same creek. It's the same body of water. There's coherence to it. And the same was true of God's promises for Abraham from the beginning to the end. At the headwaters of God's blessing, which I think we could maybe describe um, this passage from Genesis 12 as the headwaters, he told Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's what Abram did. He went um, from the land um, that he came from, that space near Babel, into Canaan, the land of God's promise. And Abram set up altars um, at the north and at the south um, boundary of that land. Not because it belonged to him, again, there were other people in the land, but as a way to sort of mark in worship um, and declare before these people God, that God had made these promises, these blessings that had not yet fully been realized. Abram was worshiping and giving thanks in hope. Then from um, Canaan, Abram went into Egypt um, because there was a famine in the land. In Egypt, it seemed like God's purposes were frustrated, maybe as a minor, or like sort of an understated way to say it. His promises were obscured. In fact, it may was even that God's promises were beyond recovery as um, Abram's wife Sarai was taken into Pharaoh, Pharaoh's harem. But in the end, Abram and Sarai came out of Egypt and went back into Canaan, and they were sent out from Egypt even wealthier and more secure than they were before. However, even in this place of returning to the land, um, prospered by the Lord, the, God, the Lord, again, um, causing sort of calamity to Pharaoh's house when, when he is threatening God's promise, even with um, God's favor upon Abram, this exalted father was fatherless, and his nephew Lot was his heir. Now the covenant of circumcision, which the Apostle Paul interpreted in today's reading from Romans, was a dramatic milestone um, in the reading. It's a milestone, again, using that idea of a stream maybe many miles downstream from God's first blessing and calling of Abram. Abram. But like um, Minnehaha Falls, or a big waterfall on a stream, it was a really remarkable um, covenant, uh, mark of God's um, call and relationship to Abram. It's no exaggeration to say that circumcision was a dramatic feature of God's covenant with Abraham. And again, think Minnehaha Falls is only 53 feet of a 22-mile creek, um, but it's the most iconic space um, within the creek. Now, I want you to think, just take a step back from, I don't say take a step back from circumcision, just think for a moment. Um, If Abram um, were were to invent a sign of God's blessing, of God's covenant with him, do you think he would have chosen circumcision? Do you think circumcision would be the one that he'd say, I'm going to show this mark that I'm favored by God, and I'm going to circumcise myself and then circumcise all the male generations after me? Now think again, Abram, Abraham coming from this place of self-made men, a place people who exalt their own name, people who build monuments to themselves, who raise great armies, who boast in their strength, who boast in the strength of horses, who orient their lives around getting wins um, and avoiding losses or inflicting losses upon others. The covenant of circumcision um, signals, it doesn't point to any of those things at all. The covenant of circumcision doesn't do any of those things. So instead, as a sign of covenant, God gave Abram a sign of vulnerability in his flesh. A sign of vulnerability to mark the honor with which God held him and Abraham's offspring. That essentially from birth, 
Abram's descendants would have a mark that emphasized both the humility and the greatness of God's people, that they were lowly, they are as nothing, and that they are great. And even when God gave um, Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, he wasn't merely a naturally born um, child, born of their union very easily as husband and wife, but even long beyond the point in which they were expected to have a child, it was like a child of dust given life by the breath of God. That's the kind of father um, that Abraham was. That's the kind of father that, that God was showing. This is, this is the kind of patriarch of my people, one whose vulnerability is marked in his flesh. And not merely a father of the flesh, but a father in faith. God calls each of us um, in our own ways, in some way or another, to leave country and kindred and father's house, our earthly privilege, if you prefer, to follow him. We can gain the whole world and we can forfeit our soul. But only by accepting our creatureliness, only by accepting and living in our dependence upon God, can we receive God's blessing of grace through faith and that's the way that we enter into God's blessing and enter his kingdom. We are called to walk according to God's promises and, and him alone. We're called to trust in him, um, though the, any appearance we are not pursuing things that last. For Paul and for Nicodemus as Pharisees, as rulers and teachers of the law, that meant for them acknowledging Jesus as Lord. It was something that cost them. It cost them their status. It put great threat against them. They were renouncing country and kindred and father's house. And although God's covenant with Abraham, um, the gift of the law of Moses, were indeed gifts from God, Abraham was justified by God before his circumcision, not after. And so as Paul wrote, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Baptism, um, which the New Testament talks about, how it corresponds to this in some ways, is a sign of our Christian humility and our dependence upon God. And baptism is a lowly sign. It's not a great and glorious sign. It involves a renunciation of the world and the flesh and the devil. It's a recognition that we need to be cleansed, that we need to be born again. And all um, identities of country and kindred and father's house and earthly privilege, all of those things are relativized. They're made just slightly different <laughs> um, or maybe transformatively different um, by our faith in Christ because we have a righteousness that's not of our own, it's not of our inheritance, but is one that comes through faith in Christ. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul uh, describes baptism as the circumcision of Christ. Baptism is the circumcision of Christ. That having been, been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So it is, again, it's not um, an exalting, it's not just a washing, but it is actually death that we are baptized into so that we might be raised with Christ in his resurrection life. And so regardless of the age of candidates, um, 
all baptism is in some sense an infant baptism. It is one in which we are reborn. A sign that we are not self-made men or women or that we bring something that has um, given us credit as we come to the Lord. But it is an accepting that we are God's creatures. People who will leave country and kindred and father's house. All benefits for the sake of being born again and receiving the breath of the Spirit. And Lent, um, as we know, is invitation at the um, Ash Wednesday service and also within the start of our um, Lenten season is a very fitting time for preparation for baptism. And as you see in the bulletin, we um, will celebrate the sacrament of baptism at Easter Vigil as we remember God's faithfulness, again, from beginning to end for God's people the way he takes lowly things and he um, treats them, treats us with great favor. And so please, if you have not been baptized, um, please um, speak with me, speak with any of the deacons um, to explore just how to, how to experience and receive that gift, that sacrament of baptism. I have um, a confession. Um, it was in my ordination process stuff, so it's not like a secret that nobody knows. Um, but although I grew up in the church and was very um, involved in the church, I myself wasn't baptized until I was 21, like after college. And it's interesting, I was in a, in a tradition that was Baptist, um, but I was out of town on the day that they did baptisms. And frankly, I was... Um, too embarrassed to go with a new cohort, a new group um, of kids to be baptized. I waited way too long and embarrassed that I'd waited so long. And so if, if that's your experience, um, if you have not yet been baptized, it is, it, is, um, it is supposed to be in some way a humbling time, but a way in which in our lowliness God lifts us up and makes, um, and makes much of us um, by filling us with his spirit. Let us all in each way, um, each of us in a different way, have to renounce again country, kindred, and father's house, each of the temptations of the world. Um, we need to support one another in following after Jesus and nothing else. Let us support one another in this, this season in following Jesus in the way of the cross. Because we need that encouragement um, to move from the land, a, a land even that we live in the midst of, of self-made men and self-made women, the temptations to make much of yourself, um, to move to a place in which God will make our name great and give us the land. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, was lifted high upon the cross that he might draw the whole world to himself, mercifully grant that we, who glory in the mystery of our redemption may have grace to take up our cross and follow him, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God and glory everlasting. Amen.